Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 82, Space Shuttle Flight 15, STS-51C. Secrets and Satellites. Before we get started today, I suppose I owe you all a quick update. As I mentioned last time, a couple weeks ago I was visiting friends in Orlando, preparing to head east to spend a few days visiting the Kennedy Space Center. Unfortunately, Orlando is as far as I got, because I ended up in the emergency room with what was soon diagnosed as a severe case of appendicitis. It turns out that there are some words that you never want to hear outside of the context of Dungeons and Dragons. Words like necrotic. Yeah, it was pretty bad. They got the thing out of there, but while I was recovering, I ran across a few not-too-serious-but-pretty-time-consuming complications. The upshot of all this is that I was in the hospital for over a week, a week that I had planned to use to finish and record the episode. And since I never got around to recording that backup episode, I had to finally break my on-time streak. Ah well, these things happen. I'm back home now and most of the way back to normal, though I'm still not supposed to lift anything heavy for a few weeks. I want to extend a sincere thanks for all the well wishes and offer two important life tips. Always have a backup, and if your stomach hurts real, real bad, go to the hospital, not Disney World. Last time, we talked about the flight of STS-51A. This remarkable mission saw the deployment of two satellites and the retrieval of two different satellites. The mission proved to be a challenge in several different aspects from rendezvous mission planning, crew operations, and EVA improvisation. But at the end of the flight, two stranded commsats were safely back home, and NASA had demonstrated yet another shuttle-unique capability. With this next mission, we enter 1985, which I think is safe to call the peak of the heady days of the early shuttle program. With nine missions flown in the same calendar year, it was the high-water mark of annual shuttle activity. We've got commercial missions, government missions, science missions, space lab missions, and classified missions. And with the flight launching on average every six weeks or so, the program really seemed to be finally hitting its stride. It's going to be a busy and fascinating year. So what better way to kick it off than with a mission that we barely know anything about? That's right, it's time for our first fully classified mission. Since I've made a big deal out of this being a classified mission, I should probably explain what that means and how it differs from a typical mission. Classified information is simply information that is kept secret by the government in the name of preserving national security. So the thought was that if the activities of this flight were to be made public, the national security of the United States would in some way be damaged. In theory, this means the mission could be just about anything. Maybe the astronauts were studying new missile detection technology, or new ways of evading the missile detection technology of foreign adversaries, or listening in on certain communications. There's also a lot of fairly boring stuff that can be classified. Maybe the plan was to just stick a bunch of potential new reconnaissance satellite batteries into the space environment to see how they held up. It could really be anything, and it's not guaranteed to be intriguing or mysterious just because it's classified. But when it came to mission planning, training, and coverage, one thing could be guaranteed. The whole thing was a giant pain in the butt. NASA, by its very nature as a civilian agency, is just not really equipped to do things secretly. It just isn't in their blood. 
All the way back to its first launches, both robotic and crude, everything had been out in the open. So they had to go way out of their way to accommodate the Department of Defense and the requirements that come with executing a classified mission. One example is that the crew had to train for both daytime and nighttime launches. That way, the training staff, or anyone else with access to the training plan, wouldn't know when the actual liftoff time would be. Another was the need to build a new secure room on the astronaut office floor, with a special safe and a secret phone with an unlisted number so that the crew could securely coordinate with their DoD customer. And another was stuff like having to craft intricate travel plans full of misleading destinations and last-second reroutes in order to attempt to mask where the crew was training. For instance, if they kept popping into specialized optics R Us, that might give a hint as to the nature of their mission. It also means, somewhat annoyingly for yours truly, that there is very little information available for the flight. There was minimal press coverage, minimal public documentation, and a pathetically short mission report. That means two things. First, the episode's going to be a little shorter, since there just isn't as much information available. I have some ideas about extra stuff to add so that the missions aren't just a few paragraphs long, but I'll have to spread them out a bit since we have a number of these classified missions to get through. Second, and I want to be clear about this, this episode is going to involve a little more information from speculative sources. Normally, I make sure to run everything back to a solid source, ideally NASA itself, but for classified activities, I'm going to have to rely on the general space community speculation, and trust you, my dear listener, to have a critical ear and a discerning mind. I'm still going to stick with what seems reputable and reasonable, and I'll make clear what is speculation, but I just wanted to be completely above board on all that. The worst part about all of this cumbersome secrecy is that in a lot of cases, it doesn't seem to have been the most effective anyway, as is humorously illustrated in a number of anecdotes from the oral histories, helpfully collected, as always, in the book Bold They Rise. That secret room with the secret phone? The astronauts once answered it, only to be treated to a pitch for long-distance phone service. Those intricate and obfuscated travel arrangements? The crew once quietly arrived at their hush-hush destination after taking a circuitous trip, only to discover the big sign outside of their motel reading, Welcome STS-51C Astronauts, along with all of their names. <laughs> Whoops. And who was that crew? In order to help maintain secrecy, STS-51C flew with a smaller crew of only five, all of whom had some military background. Commanding the flight was Ken Mattingly. We know Mattingly for almost flying as command module pilot on Apollo 13, actually flying as command module pilot on Apollo 16, and commanding the last orbital test flight, STS-4. With this, his third of three flights, he becomes the last person to have flown to the moon to fly in space. And he never did get the measles. Joining Mattingly at the front of the flight deck was pilot Lauren Shriver. Lauren Shriver was born on September 23, 1944, in Jefferson, Iowa. He earned a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering from the U.S. Air Force Academy and a master's in astronautical engineering from Purdue University, a school known for pumping out a number of astronauts. After serving in the usual lineup of instructor and test pilot roles, he was scooped up by NASA in 1978. This is his first of three flights. Mission Specialist 1 was L. Onizuka. Ellison Onizuka was born on June 24, 1946, 
in Kealakakua, Hawaii. He earned a bachelor's and master's degree in aerospace engineering from the University of Colorado. He must have been working pretty hard because he somehow earned both of those in 1969. Since he took part in Air Force ROTC while in school, he hopped right into the Air Force as an officer the following year. For the next eight years, he worked as a flight test engineer on a ridiculously long list of aircraft that I'm not going to bother rattling off here. He joined NASA in 1978, and this is his first of two spaceflight assignments, with the second being the Challenger Accident Flight, STS-51L. Mission Specialist 2 was James Buckley. James Buckley was born on June 20, 1945, in New Rockford, North Dakota. He earned bachelor's and master's degrees in aeronautical engineering from the U.S. Naval Academy and University of West Florida, respectively. He spent a year on the ground serving as a Marine overseas in Vietnam. When he returned home, he learned how to fly in Marine fighter attack squadrons and spent several years flying all over the place, including the U.S. Test Pilot School. NASA came calling shortly afterwards, with him joining in 1978. This is his first of four space flights. And completing our crew, payload specialist one, Gary Payton. Gary Payton was also born on June 20th, but in 1948, in Rock Island, Illinois. Payton earned bachelor's and master's degrees in astronautical and aeronautical engineering from the U.S. Air Force Academy and Purdue University before reporting for pilot training. So far, Peyton's career sounds like a number of other astronauts with military backgrounds. But that's where the similarities end. That's because rather than joining NASA as a career astronaut, Peyton was part of the Manned Spaceflight Engineer Program, which is worthy of a brief detour in today's show. The Manned Spaceflight Engineer Program strikes me as one of those ideas that made sense in a certain context, had that context change around it, and then just sort of kept going for a while out of inertia. Stepping back to the 1970s, remember that the Department of Defense had somewhat reluctantly backed the shuttle program in exchange for a number of vehicle features and program concessions. The thought was that the shuttle would be flying dozens of times a year, and that a significant number of those missions would be completely dedicated to Department of Defense activities. As such, it made sense to have a group of DOD officers who knew both the DOD side of things and the space shuttle side of things. But interagency politics being what it was, rather than just send a bunch of military folks to go work for NASA, the DOD essentially decided to have their own group of astronauts. The thought was that these people would undergo extensive specialized training, learning about the shuttle, satellite systems, and so on, but that it would be mostly DOD training, not NASA training. Then when a DOD mission came up, payload specialists could be drawn from the pool of folks in the Manned Spaceflight Engineer Program. Friction began, essentially, immediately. From NASA's point of view, this was a bunch of outsiders who didn't know the NASA way and were being pushed onto the flights, taking valuable slots from the quote-unquote real astronauts. From the DOD point of view, they were maintaining control over highly skilled officers who were supposed to drop in for a brief stint serve on a spaceflight or two, and then return to their quote-unquote real career. While I don't think it was the primary motivation for the manned spaceflight engineer program, they were sick of military officers joining NASA and never returning. It was an arrangement that had dubious chances of success even under ideal circumstances. But throw in slower-than-expected launch tempo and then the Challenger accident, and it was doomed to failure. 
32 people were chosen for this role in three groups over six years, and of them, only two would ever fly in space, with Gary Payton here being the first. This was Payton's only spaceflight. This mission was originally known as STS-10, but was kicked down the road a number of times due to issues with the upper stage to be used on the classified payload. That upper stage was the inertial upper stage, which made its space shuttle debut with the deployment of Tedris-A on STS-6. As you'll recall, that deployment didn't go the best, with Tedris-A ending up in a far lower than intended orbit due to a propulsion system failure. Engineers at the Goddard Space Flight Center spent weeks executing a painfully slow orbit-raising campaign using the spacecraft's station-keeping thrusters, and the mission eventually was a success. But the upper stage needed to be fixed. It took nearly two years to fix the problem and get back on the launch schedule, but at last, everything was finally sorted out, and launch day arrived, only to be scrubbed for one more day. Somewhat ominously, the launch, originally scheduled for January 22, 1985, almost exactly one year before the Challenger accident, was delayed due to unusually cold weather creating unsafe conditions for the vehicle. On January 23, 1985, at 2.50 p.m. Eastern Time, Discovery leapt off the pad and flew into a 342-kilometer circular orbit and climbed to the Earth's equator by 28.5 degrees. This likely came as a surprise to a number of people in the area, since the launch time had only been made public nine minutes ahead of time, due to the secretive nature of the mission. The ascent went smoothly, but it's worth noting that both the forward field joint on the left SRB and the middle field joint on the right SRB suffered significant blow-by, likely due to the unusually cold weather. After that, the mission got underway. So, what happened? Well, we don't really know much. The mission report simply offers a bland statement asserting that the classified payload's upper stage performed satisfactorily. Super. Alright, so what do we think it's doing? Well, again, we don't know for sure, but basically every source I've looked at speculates that the payload was the first of the Magnum Orion series of electronics intelligence satellites. These would expand a 100-meter, yes, 100-meter, diameter dish out at geostationary orbit in order to listen to radio signals from, well, someone. Though it is worth noting that it seems the geo-slot it settled into could easily keep an eye, or an ear, on a certain eastern winter-bound superpower. 100 meters is clearly a ridiculous size for a satellite, and I'd love to see the deployment mechanism but it would be well worth the trouble. With such a gigantic dish, the spacecraft would be capable of picking up all sorts of stray electromagnetic signals, signals that were never intended to be received from such a distance. They'd be able to pick up stuff like military communications, microwave relay signals that overshot the receiver, and basically anything that radiated upwards. You can think of electronics intelligence satellites like this as complementing the optical reconnaissance satellites we're already familiar with. But instead of pointing a big telescope, they're pointing a big radio antenna. And since it's possible to make extremely sensitive radio receivers, the satellite can conveniently live in geo and just point at its target all day long. Again, there's no official word, but from what I've read, it seems that this satellite was a complete success snooping on radio signals for many years to come. 
With bad weather on the horizon in Florida and the payload successfully deployed, Discovery got ready to come home a day early. Bummer for the crew, but it makes things easier for the mission overall. Three days, one hour, and 33 minutes after lifting off, STS-51C landed at the shuttle landing facility at the Kennedy Space Center, its brief mission complete. As far as we know, the mission was a total success, and NASA was starting to make good on its commitments to the DoD. At the time, it seemed that maybe this shaky relationship could work after all. Well, we'll see about that. Before we head out, I just wanted to say thanks one more time for all the well wishes that were sent my way over the last couple of weeks. If you'd like to reach out to ask a question, correct me on something, send along some feedback, or just say hi, you can best reach me via email at jp at thespaceabove.us. You can also get a quick but shorter response from me on the show's Twitter feed, at spaceaboveus. I dropped the the to save a few characters. I think at this point, I'm going to go ahead and call the show's Facebook page dead in the water, especially since I finally deleted my personal account. So hopefully not too many people get their updates from there. Also, the show does have a website with a few odds and ends on there, including a books and sources list, which will be coming pretty soon. The site is thespaceabove.us. And lastly, I just wanted to say thanks to those of you who have helped spread the word by leaving iTunes reviews, retweeting new episode announcements, and recommending the show to your space nerd friends. Seriously, thanks. It means a lot. Next time, in two weeks, I promise, we're back with an unclassified mission full of all sorts of unclassified details we can actually talk about as Discovery is back on the launch pad for the third time in a row for STS-51D. We'll deploy a couple of commsats, invent a new scale for measuring nausea, and see the world's most high-tech fly swatter. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.